Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we're going to be hearing from electronic musical instrument inventor and musician, Don Lewis. Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org library. And welcome back, everyone, to another great episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about Don Lewis. And uh, I have to say, watching his interviews, we actually have three interviews with him. Uh, you just really get a great per- like vibe off of what his personality is. And it's, Absolutely. he's such a joy to listen to. And mm. I'm actually a little jealous that I wasn't a part of the most recent interview. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, you guys are in for a treat today, definitely. Well, he is, in my estimation, a true family member here at NAM, without a doubt. Yeah, he has been involved with us as an organization since the 70s, along with his great, wonderful wife, Julie, um, who is a cheerleader of all cheerleaders for Don, a wonderful lady uh, who has a wonderful insight as well. And so it is really a pleasure to have this opportunity to provide his interviews in a different format here on the podcast, because it's my hope that we will provide a little insight into an amazing musical career today. So let's jump right into these interviews. We're going to be starting with the most recent interview with Don, which was conducted in March of 2021. And he's just going to be talking about his passion for music, kind of where it came from, and how he got involved in the music industry. You know, one of the things that I was looking back on, we sat down three or four times, I think, uh, uh, to chat. And I don't think I ever asked you, but I would love to know some of your earliest memories of music. Oh, that's easy. Um, I must have probably been about a year or two old and going to church and my parents take take me there and and I would hear the music and I watched the preacher preach. (laughs) That was my first, I would think my first, and listening to the old, the old gospel, the old spirituals, the old, um, <clears throat> they called Dr. Watts hymns um, that the, the deacons would, would sing a cappella. The church would sing a cappella. Uh, that music, and which takes me, at least at that time um, and, and beyond, because they sang the same things over and over throughout my life when I was there in Dayton, Ohio, the Mount Enon Baptist Church. And, and then my mom, she loved opera. So I remember when I was maybe about four or five years old, <clears throat> every, every Saturday, I believe it was, Saturday afternoon, the Metropolitan Opera would be on. And mom would turn the radio on, but she wouldn't turn it up as loud as she normally would turn it up because she didn't want, <laughs> she didn't want her neighbors to think that she was <clears throat> you know, being you know, too sophisticated. We lived in the projects. 
and that music wasn't really really that much <laughs> popular in that area. But I remember sitting there um, Saturday after Saturday, and after a while, um, the music became an image maker. I was then looking at the stage. Of course, it was a radio, and the radio dial to me was the stage. And I could see those people singing and the orchestra playing, and I was there. That never, that never went away. I still, to this day, can st still feel that. And then after a while, if, 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 if it was something that they repeated and I knew, I would get up and start acting like I was the conductor, <laughs> standard director <laughs> orchestra. <laughs> and um, so between that and church music, and then again, um, schools <clears throat> back in that time had music programs. Every, almost every classroom had a piano in it or one of those, um, what do you call it? Um, uh, not a harpsichord, uh, was, there was another one. It had chords on it, uh, auto harp? but auto harp, auto harp. Teacher either played auto harp or she played the piano, and, but we would sing. First grade, Miss Patterson in first grade, uh, we would walk in uh, after we lined up outside, we walk in and then we do a Pledge of Allegiance and we do the Lord's Prayer, sing, uh, 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 repeat the Lord's Prayer. And then after that, we would sing about two or three songs. By the time we finished those two or three songs, we were ready to learn because first thing, phys the physical side of it had happened. We were breathing deeply and therefore the oxygen was going to our blood, uh, going through the blood, and then the blood's going up here. And, and so this thing is at optimum, ready to go. I don't know where educators got the idea that this was not a good thing. Why they didn't keep it. Mm. Why kids are unruly. Why aren't they, you know, paying attention? They can't pay attention if this thing is not working well. And there's two reasons, either not enough food or maybe even more than that, not enough food and not enough oxygen to, to the brain. And how do you get that without having to jump up and down? Maybe after, you know, Jim, <laughs> he might be ready to learn. But uh, that's, that's, those things were, I think, were fundamental in understanding what music meant to me. And I've, I've taken you from, from, what, two years old on up until high school. So that, and of course, church music. And then um, at high school, by the time I got to high school, um, the Columbia Record Club was, you know, in full force. <laughs> and so I ordered some classical records because um, you get them for, what was a penny? Uh, not a penny, but a dollar, I think, for each record. <clears throat> and you get in club. The classical records were the most expensive ones. So you sign up for the classical. But then after you do your 12, then, then you can order anything you want. So then the jazz came in next. <laughs> <laughs> so these were things that fed my... Um, my yearning 
Of course, we learned uh, to play the flutophone in fourth grade, <laughs> the plastic recorder, and, uh, and I got into ukulele probably around 11, 12 years old. Uh, and then uh, I learned to play the organ, and that happened. <laughs> not, not as fast as I wanted it to, but it did, it did. And um, so that was sort of a good start, I think. No doubt. That's wonderful. <laughs> Any particular songs from you growing up still meaningful to you? I would think probably the spirituals. Um, the spirituals and classical, um, as, as we call it, classical music, uh, seem to ring close, closer to me than almost anything else. Um, everything else to me is, is a derivative of. Uh, the spirituals, um, if you look at the spirituals, that's where gospel came from. The blues came from that. In fact, the spiritual, the blues and the spirituals are, uh, are one and the same, um, except they change the lyrics. <laughs> mm. <laughs> they have that much power. Um, and of course, the derivatives of, of jazz from, from both of those. Um, and as far as American music is concerned, um, I think that was the foundation. The westernization of the African um, music, um, the Africans taking um, their song, their pentatonics, and um, <clears throat> and bending them, <laughs> called the blues. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's <clears throat> um, so. As far as songs are concerned, uh, generally speaking. Um, the spirituals, I think, encompasses, because you can have joyful ones, you've got ones that are really deep in emotions, the work songs. I wonder how, I wouldn't be here, I, I feel like I would not be here if it hadn't been f for my ancestors singing in those fields and surviving because she, they sang. So as you can tell, I mean, he just has such a great personality and, and you could tell how much he loves music and how that, how early that started for him. Um, and I think we can all relate a little bit to that, especially in grade school and, mm. and slowly developing into that. And also with the church music, um, he has his first interview that we uh, did with him. He actually talked a lot about uh, music in the church and, and that evolution and what that really meant to him. So well, that's not included on this podcast, but if you guys want to check that out, I would definitely recommend that. Um, yeah. But I just love the way he talks about the blues and spiritual music kind of being one and the same with just little tweaks and little differences. I think that that was a really unique uh, comparison that he did there. Absolutely. In fact, that reminds me of a wonderful quote from our friend Elliot Eastman from The Cars. Mm -hmm. He's a regular at the NAM show. And he was saying that it was his um, impression that the main difference between the Jewish people and the Italians is the soup. And um, I love that line because it's very similar to, you know, Don's, hey, you know what, let's disarm ourselves a little bit here and talk about what is behind these musics that um, seem to always 
generate such um, animosity that you can't possibly like one if you like the other. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in the early days of gospel music, um, 100 years ago or so, when the blues began to be more recorded and listened to and played in clubs, it was known as the devil's music. And uh, we kind of a little bit chuckle at that now, but there were lives that were ruined, careers that were ruined because they decided that they wanted to record a song of the blues and therefore they could never be uh, accepted back into certain uh, venues such as churches. Um, that's just a really crying shame. And I think um, what Don really helps us disarm that notion is that there's, there's love and there's spirit behind both styles of music and mm -hmm. um, and embracing both of them has allowed American popular music to go, you know, march forward into rock and roll and, and jazz and pop music that we know today. It definitely is the foundation of both of those styles. So, um, you know, the, the thing, the word that comes to mind when I think of Don Lewis is endearing. You know, the second you meet that guy, you just want him to feel the same way that you feel towards him, right? You just yeah. want to be buddies and friends. And you know what? That's exactly what happens. That's what happens when you're around somebody who has such a high spirit, has such a heart, a love for individuals and creativity and music. And um, it's just a real joy to be his friend. And I've been his friend for a very long time. And I can say that it just seems to get better. You know, we just saw him a year ago when he was here in Carlsbad, California at uh, the Museum of Making Music. And that's when that interview was conducted, the most recent one. And nothing has changed, even though I hadn't seen him in over a year. And I don't know, there's just something really compelling about it. And I really think it has a lot to do with his upbringing in, in music and, and helping other people um, take down some barriers mm -hmm. of understanding and showing them the merits of gospel music for those who weren't exposed and the blues for those who weren't exposed and jazz even. Um, just a really interesting approach that I think has done a world of good for an awful lot of people. Because the second you hear this guy play, you understand what he's doing. I, I, I don't think anybody has a mystery about where his motivation and where his love comes from the second that finger hits a note. And that's, I think, the other compelling thing about Don Lewis is his enormous talent for which he is always shy to talk about, um, but it's it's evident in spades the second that you see him. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was that he and I um, have had a lot of conversations, some of which some of which were documented in these interviews about our mutual uh, hero in Thomas A. Dorsey. Um, please don't be confused with the big band leader. Tommy Dorsey. Thomas A. was an African-American uh, blues musician uh, and gospel songwriter. And so he was definitely one of the guys who broke that barrier. But, you know, it sort of came at a cost of his own career. Um, but he wrote some amazing songs. And what's really neat when you hear 
um, Don sing one of those songs, knowing the background of this guy who was alienated from his own church at one point, um, singing those words that Mr. Dorsey wrote through the eyes and the talent of Don is, I, I mean, I get goosebumps every time because there's more than just a connection. You know, there's more than just bringing it from here to here. It's feeling it. And, and I, I just so appreciate that about him. So yeah. like, as Ashley said, oh, sorry to cut you off, Ashley. I just wanted to reiterate what you said earlier about that full interview, his first one, the 2002. If you want to learn more about his experience with gospel music, um, you can just head to nam.org slash library and search for Don Lewis and that full interview will pop up for you. Yeah, that's what I was going to say was that in that first interview, he he goes into some great detail about Thomas A. Dorsey. <laughs> the big difference. And he also talks about the difference of them, of them to not get confused. Yeah. Very cool. Very neat. So moving forward with this episode, we're going to go back in terms of the interview. We're going to go to <laughs> Don's 2004 NAM oral history interview, but we're actually going to go forward with his life in music. Um, and he's going to be you talking. Got that, right? Everyone got that? Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? I <laughs> kind of can put forward. <laughs> got it. A little confusing. Um, he's going to be talking about now his experience with the music products industry. Um, and it starts with him at a NAMM show while he was working for the Hammond Company, um, talking with his friend, Mr. Kakahashi from Roland. And this is when the electronic instrument side of Don's career really starts to take off. So it's very interesting. We're really excited to show it to you. Um, so enjoy this next segment of the interview with Don Lewis. I remember when first synthesizers came out. Uh, I was working with Arp, and um, and he saw some of the things I was working with, and um, he waited a little while before before he actually came out with his first synthesizer. But when he did, I remember going to a NAMM show. It was like up in Chicago, um, and he came out. I think was his SH1. Or something like that. One of one of his first models, and um, he had his little little area. It was a little booth, and I was upstairs demonstrating the the Hammond organ for Hammond. And uh, he came and told me, he said, "Oh, I have something I'll show you." So I came down, and he had he had this uh, this this uh, synthesizer, and it had tabs on it. So. It, it, it was more like an organ, but it had different voices. But it was a synthesizer. And you could set it on top of an organ because it was a monophonic. It only played one note at a time. And you set it on top. And uh, so when, when I wasn't demonstrating for him, and I would come down and play it for, to demonstrate it for him. Wow. And, um, and, <laughs> that was really cool. Oh, yeah, because it was so innovative. Innovative and and Hammond at that time did not have a synthesizer, other than the, than the uh, the keyboards. Also, it must have been sort of neat that he thought of you to show it to. Yeah. Well, we. Good. Yeah, but you know, at that time, um, you know, he wasn't he wasn't really very very famous. Mm. You know, I mean, he he was like compared to Hammond because Hammond was like the company if you were to think of. Right keyboards 
um, even more so than Yamaha, because Yamaha hadn't come out with um, a synthesizer as such. And it wasn't until the DX7 came out um, that they really had uh, a blockbuster, you know, uh, killer instrument. Um, but his innovations through not only looking at uh, keyboards, but then he started the guitar synthesizer uh, right after, I think, uh, ARP had started. In fact, that was ARP's uh, Achilles heel. ARP had to go out of business because they did not have the resources to continue. I think it was called the Aftar or something like that. Okay. And they started doing the uh, guitar. Um, that was the next interface. But he stuck with the guitar. And then, of course, then, um, and then, of course, all the other synthesizers, the D50, I worked, helped him with the D50. Uh, the, before that was the JP4. And that was the first digitally controlled analog synthesizer that he had built. Um, so when you look at him um, as, the, as an industry innovator, um, I think because he is touchable. Um, Tarol San uh, has this wonderful aura that he loves people. Um, and if you were to look at him as being a model, a role model, for just not only music, musicians, but people in general. He just seems to have the wisdom and the humanity um, that shows forth in, in, in all that he does. He never seems to forget uh, uh, as powerful as he could, as, as powerful and innovative as he has been, he's still always been accessible mm -hmm. to people. And I think if you were to look at the industry in, in most cases, uh, he stands um, tall, very tall, if, if not paramount, as far as looking at um, people who have been um, influential, not only influential, but I think to the point of a revolutionary, um, but still touchable. He's not eccentric. I mean, you would think someone would, with this, this kind of a talent to bring people together and that, you know, they would be kind of aloof, but he isn't. And I think that's probably, uh, for me, uh, the most uh, gracious um, thing about him. Uh, the, I mean, there's so many things, but I, I think his, his, human, his humanity, um, along with it, wanting to use music and musical instruments as a way to bring people together. I don't think he saw Leo um, in 77 when I actually built it. Um, it wasn't until 78. In fact, uh, I, I don't even know. 78, it would, it would have been November of 78. Right after I had finished a Japanese tour, I was in Japan for three weeks and went to Australia. And I told him about Leo. And then I think shortly thereafter, after I got back to uh, San Francisco and settled into the Hungry Tiger, uh, he came in 
and he saw what, it, what had been created. He not only came in, he brought in, and he kept coming back. Next time he came through, I think he brought some engineers over. And we just, I mean, they would sit there in the club um, at the Hungry Tiger, and uh, we'd just have a great time. By this time, um, the vocoder, which I don't have here, the vocoder, uh, he had started building that. And he, in fact, before they actually built it, he had me come over and look at the breadboard version of it. And, um, and I didn't really know what I was going to do with this thing, but I just knew that when I spoke into this microphone and played some notes, man, it brought me back to the old Baptist church with a choir. Yeah. And so I always used it as a, a, a background for the choir. Right. And um, so when I put it with this, this unit, and of course on the demo here, you hear the vocoder as much as you hear Leo, and I wired it into the way so that, that it could be controlled. Um, to me, that was, that was like one of the, the greatest things. And he, then he, I think he saw, okay, here is Roland, Roland, Oberheim, Arp, Hammond, and some Arp inside of here, and then the vocoder, and then the TR-808, but before that was TR, um, uh, what was it, TR-77. Uh, CR, I think you call it, I think you call it CR, yeah. CompuRhythm, I think it was there, yeah. 78 or 76 or something like that. Anyway, and I had those, and so all of these things were working in con concert, and, and not one instrument overpowered or was the predominant instrument. It was the combination of the different sounds that gave Leo its very unique sound. And it was, and, and I think what I think, what went over in his mind was, it's not about this all being rolling equipment, but it's a matter that all, it's like the people he brings into his life. It's not that everybody has to look the same, uh, think the same. It's, it's the combination that makes this thing really brilliant. So he says, here is a man, and he, he saw all of the, the connections that I had to make, the interfacings and the buffers and so forth that we had to do to, to make all this happen with his analog equipment. None of it would talk to one another. So I think he thought about, hey, how about a computer protocol that would allow each one of these instruments to talk to one another and be controlled or whatever the case might be. Um, and, and I think he, they started putting their heads together. And this probably was the paramount time that big companies like Yamaha, Roland, and I guess Dave Smith from EMU was a sequential circus at that time. Those were the three, I think, three instigators. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, um, um, creators of this whole idea of, of MIDI. And I guess they had many, many meetings. And um, I think in 1983 was the first time that I saw MIDI on an instrument. And I, 
uh, and I think that was the DX7. And um, so that's when everything started to come in fruition, the beginning of, of the MIDI rev revolution. You are listening to the Music History Project. We are deep into these Don Lewis interviews, having a lot of fun. Mm. And he just brought up Leo, the live electronic orchestra. So cool. And we're really excited to talk about this because Leo actually is currently living in the Museum of Making Music at the NAMM headquarters in Carlsbad, California. So if you're in that neck of the woods, you can head over to the museum and actually see Leo for yourself. Um, there's even a little video of Don from his oral history interview, um, kind of explaining what he's doing. Um, just so cool. What, what a feat of technology. Mm. Something that you look at, and if you don't really understand what you're looking at, it can just be like, whoa. Because <laughs> there is so a lot, lot going on there. Yeah, Absolutely. Definitely. Well, what's really cool is that's the guy who came up with this amazing <laughs> idea. You know, this great, compelling dude that we've been listening to for the last couple of minutes came up with this amazing technology and, and took care of a huge need that he and several other musicians had at the time. And I just absolutely love the idea of saying Leo, like it's a pal, you know, it's like <laughs> a friend, it's Leo. Hey, you know, I know Leo. Um, but Your I think picture we, taken with Leo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dan and Leo. Um, but I think we forget the subtlety of the name live electronic orchestra, because this day and age, um, way away from the early 1970s when Leo was created. Electronic music today is so often can be pre-recorded, um, pre-programmed, um, because that way you don't catch, you know, you can do all the mistake cleanup. Mm -hmm. And so when you present something with electronic music, it's often already sequenced and, and produced. But that's not at all what Leo was about. Leo was about Don hitting those notes live and you hearing it just happened to be an electronic instrument, but there was nothing pre-recorded about it. There was nothing sequenced or um, planned out. I shouldn't say it quite like that, but electronically captured ahead of time was all live. And so when we say Leo without the emphasis of the word live, I think some people miss how impressive that really was back in the 70s when he created this amazing instrument. Yeah. I just love that about him. And the fact that it's here in the museum, which is um, downstairs from where I'm sitting now in the NAM headquarters <laughs> office, is just an absolute delight um, because this is a historic instrument if ever there was one. And um, because we're about to give more of that, uh, what came from Leo later in this podcast, a little spoiler, it was <laughs> mammoth. Um, what Leo really turned out to be the foundation of uh, so <laughs> many creative products and technology. But Back in the early 70s, when he did that, it was far from his mind. He was just trying to make money as a musician, and he had ideas in his head that he couldn't produce without the help of several different technologies that needed to sort of be glued together. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, what, what Leo is. So uh, in 2000, or it was maybe it was 1999, when the NAM show was temporarily in Los Angeles because the Anaheim Convention Center was being remodeled, um, we had a synthesizer exhibit uh, to 
show people that this museum is uh, going to be open soon. And one of the elements will be having electronic instruments. And so we had some heavy hitters. I was just really happy with, I mean, uh, Roger Lynn from the Lynn Drum Machine was there. Mr. Kakahashi from Roland was there. Tom Oberheim was there. <laughs> Dave Smith from Sequential Circuit. I mean, uh, Don Buchla, probably Whoa. one of the early, <laughs> early pioneers of synthesizer. And Bob Moog, among others. Herb Deutsch, I don't want to miss anybody, but there were a lot. It was basically a who's who of who created synthesizers. And uh, Don Lewis was there. And Julie came over to the staff and said, you know, we have an instrument that's in the storage unit that hasn't been played in a while that might be interesting. So that was wow. the genesis of how Leo came to NAM. Wow. That's, I love that they just had it in storage. Because <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you see it in person or in video, like you just the how big it is it's and just huge. like how, how you would try like move that i just don't i don't well, know you know but, he gigged with that he took that yeah. to clubs that's I mean, when people complain about moving the hammond b3 <laughs> this is like four of those <laughs> i just it's a it's an amazing uh instrument and a uh, piece of technology uh pieces of technology really mm. Uh, but kind of going back into that, you were talking a little bit about how he just created it um, because it was needed. And and you hear so many stories of, of, of um, great musicians and inventors creating something just out of necessity. It wasn't, they didn't have this grand idea to make this, hmm. you know, thing. They were just like, I need it to do this. And how do I make it do this? Let me figure this out and make this happen. And and I think that, that those are all such great stories that um, they weren't looking to be inventors. They just wanted it, something to do something else. And so they tried to figure out how to make that happen. So, That's right. Yeah, it's really great. And so like Dan said, um, we do have this in the, our museum. So if you are there, you can definitely check it out and really go into all the detail. Uh, Don is going to go into some of the detail now. Um, but if you want to hear the full, like, explanation from the inventor himself uh you can also check out the 2004 full interview on our website uh and you can get understand where almost pretty much every wire every button <laughs> everything <laughs> you will be an expert by the time you've seen it so uh let's get back into this interview and like i said he's going to go into a little bit more detail of exactly what uh what is um what the instrument is is and what it does and all the different components and uh and uh yeah hope you guys all enjoy this and are more fascinated and have to check out the rest of it or go see it in person because it's pretty <laughs> impressive uh, so let's get back to don lewis what led up to leo was the fact it, it was um trying to create um invention of necessity um i was surrounded with all of these different keyboards I had my ARP, in fact, these two units here had their own keyboard. And I had them sitting on this side of me, trying to play notes. And then I had uh, the Hammond organ part in front of me on this side. And I had, in back of me, if I remember, I had an ARP Odyssey. I mean, I had keyboards all around. And it, was, it looked impress impressive, but to play music on it, and, and still 
maintain any kind of musicality. It was, it, it was crazy. I said, there's got to be an easier way to do this. So my dream was that I always felt, as soon as the synthesizers came into being, that all other instruments, whether they pre-existed or were going to be in existence after, as you know, were going to be created, uh, were going to be built around this technology. Because this technology was, you could morph it. You could, you could move it around. You could create new sounds. And basically, the other instruments were synthesizers, but they were sort of um, um, fixed in a certain manner. They could only create sound in a certain way. And so I looked at this as, I said, well, maybe we could put this all together. And so my idea was to take this, um, this instrument that I had, and then put it together with other instruments and have it controlled from one, well, at least a central location. Um, the first innovation that, that really inspired me, I think, was, um, and it wasn't an innovation, innovation itself, it was the sound that I heard when Stevie Wonder came out with Talking Book. Prior to that, though, even prior to that, was Switched on Bach. Wendy Carlos, then Walter Carlos, came out with Switched on Bach. And I just thought, oh, man, that's the sound. That is the new sound. And I want to get into that sound, even though I was playing organ, just you know, jazz organ and pop organ and so forth. And so all of these things swimming in my head, how to bring these two worlds together, the organ and the synthesizer, which, which I told Hammond at a later time, I says, just mark my words, the synthesizer is going to be the instrument of the future, and it's going to have a button on it that says organ. And they looked at me and said, he must be out of his mind. But I could see it because in my studies and in, um, in, in my experience with um, um, building electronic equipment, I knew that you had oscillators, you had filters, and all of that stuff was just, you know, a way to, to change the sound. And if the synthesizer was doing this with the Moog, and later on ARP, and later on Oberheim, and then later on um, Roland, and, uh, and then the um, Yamaha stuff that came out. I knew that this was, this earlier, even before that, that this was going to be the wave. So that's what got me started to build this instrument. I was really getting tired of doing this, and this, and then sometimes like this, I'm trying to play one keyboard and on a key on this side. And uh, so it was um, an invention on, out of necessity um, to make it more practical to play. And the original, as far as putting it together, Richard Bates. Um, my original thought actually was to have three key, uh, four keyboards. But after I designed the, the uh, console and I looked at it, I needed a control panel. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to sacrifice the keyboard space for a control panel here, which, you, as you can see, is in some places pretty sparse. <laughs> uh, 
I could have probably still stuck that other keyboard up there. Uh, Richard Bates um, was just out of high school, uh, loved um, and, uh, working with electronics, and I met him in Denver, and he loved to play. He loves, he, he, he loves to play the uh, organ, and, and by this time, everybody was fascinated with either uh, Carlos or Tomata, Tomita, <laughs> Tomata, <laughs> Tomita, Tomata. Uh, let's call the whole thing off. Uh, anyway, but he um, he was uh, very interested in that, and I saw that, and I told him what I wanted to do. And you keep these dreams going on in your head, and finally one day the uh, time comes, and I remember having this um, guy by the name of. Uh, DeWitt, um, Eugene DeWitt, who had this idea he wanted me to put a show together. And I says, okay. And I had this console with nothing in it, was sitting in my living room. I had just built it. And it sit my, sat in my living room for, for two years, collecting dust. But it sat there. The dream is still alive, even though it's in my head, not there. And I came, and he came by one day, and he was telling me about me. And, and I showed him this, and I says, "I want to create. I want to finish this, this console." And I says, "We'll build the show around the console." And he says, "Well, you got to have some people in it." So we had to put a whole band and so forth together, and that's how it came together. So Richard Bates, um, uh, Eugene Dewitt. And uh, we worked, I worked, he f helped finance it, and I worked with uh, Richard for about three, four months. This was like early 77. Went, about winter, spring of 77. And by June, May, end of May, June, we had built this, we got it together, and, and it, was, uh, it was working, it was cool. And it was still a work in progress. Um, on up until I left Denver and, and brought it out to uh, San Francisco. Um, the idea of putting this all together um, had no more to do about, it, 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 was, it was really about making music. But in the process of making music, um, this idea, uh, the fruition of it became an instrument that can make different kinds of music with all the different types of technology. Uh, by this time, we're still using draw bars, but the tone wheels are no longer there. We're using what, what Hammond called then large-scale integrated circuitry, LSI. Um, and then I had the ARP, actually the ARP soloist is actually built in the lower keyboard of the Hammond. Were there a few concepts that you didn't quite get a chance to get around to or couldn't quite figure out? Or? Yeah. How to make it more portable. <laughs> uh, uh, um, this was... I helped lift it, so I know exactly what you mean. Oh, yeah. This, the plexiglass is very dense and very heavy. And um, uh, as you can see, this is sort of, this looks like cast aluminum or something down there, or it's steel. 
and then you got this columns. The base is already pretty heavy, but it would have to be to support support the top. And I tell you, where Richard, um, along with the, the the electronic part, he came up with this this uh, idea that this plexiglass would not be able to support all of it would not be able to support all of these printed circuit cards plus the keyboards. So he came up with an endoskeleton. And if you can see, it looks like almost like a scaffold inside. He's got this rack, and he built this whole metal frame and places the different levels here for the different keyboards and to support all of this structure. And, and then it all rests, instead of all of it being, you know, straining this plexiglass, it's resting on the platform mm. of the top of this column wow. at the very top. So everything is like screwed in here and secured. And, hi there. And, and so I, that to me was the, the, the most difficult part. And he figured this out. That was his baby to figure out. Okay, now you guys understand. He is excitable <laughs> about talking about wires and everything because <laughs> this is his passion. This was the instrument that helped him express himself musically to an audience. And I think what's also um, a, an explanation of his excitement in this interview is the fact that people were listening. You know, it, this instrument was in storage for a while. You know, he had sort of moved on from Leo and used other instruments as technology came and made things more affordable and easier to move and things like that. And I think he was just excited that this was considered a historic instrument in the minds of those people that cared the most, you know, NAM and, and the NAM uh, industry that we represent, the music products industry. I mean, we were giving credit to all of that amazing um, innovation that he had given into this instrument and we're recognizing it. And I do think that's part of what we're hearing here too, is mm -hmm. wow, you care about this conductor? Nobody asked me about this before. <laughs> well, let me tell you. And that's great because that really has been the foundation for so many innovations in musical products since that time. And of course, um, the idea of instruments talking to each other led to MIDI. And um, and then he played a big role in the presets of uh, MIDI instruments. Uh, it just amazing, amazing talent. And and I'm I'm compelled to tell the story of when I first uh, met Don and Julie and Leo. I was about 15 years old, living in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I had a very dear friend uh, named Seth, who my oldest son is named after. And um, one day, uh, Seth told me that there was an advertisement in the newspaper about this really cool, like, space age instrument with, like, it sounds like a rocket taking off, I think was part of the article or advertisement. <laughs> and he was really excited about it. So, um we arranged to have um, my mom drive us to uh, the Hungry Tiger, which was the restaurant slash bar that uh, he was performing in, Don was. And um, 
I just remember that the um, my mom had to talk to the bartender about him kind of watching us and making sure that we don't, you know, like try to get a drink or anything like that. But I, he was going to sort of babysit us and, and make sure we were on our best behavior, which we were because we were really excited about this. Um, I actually, uh, I get more credit than I deserve that. Oh my gosh, you were so smart to, to go and visit Leo at such a young age. Well, I can't take the credit. It was Seth. He was the one who was excited about it. I wasn't even sure really what it was. I thought it was going to look like a rocket because that was the sounds <laughs> that it was making and all of that. So, you know, I was very, very naive, but I, I remember a few things about that. I remember, um, on playing some gospel themed music in a nightclub. And I thought that was really cool. It, it, I didn't know people had done that. You know, I hadn't been into many nightclubs at that age. Um, and so that was the one thing that, that stuck in my head, how comfortable people were listening to this. And I, I have since had many experiences like that. The Chambers Brothers is another one that comes to mind that I got to listen to them playing church music in a nightclub and having these people that don't, the audience that not necessarily were people I would have seen on a Sunday morning, at least not looking just the same, loving the music and thinking about the barriers, the barriers, the barriers being thrown down because of how Don played that instrument. It was just, that was something that was quite impressive to me. And of course, the second and probably the, the most compelling thing was afterwards, as people were kind of leaving, my mom hadn't come back yet. And so uh, we were kind of waiting and, and uh, Seth says, I would like to go and meet him. And I said, me too. So we kind of made our way. I think we had to tell the bartender we want to go meet Don. And he was totally cool. So we did. And um I, I don't want to go into too much detail here about my friend Seth, but he had a illness that took him away from us about six months after this. Um, and he had a little oxygen tank that he had to carry, but he was really a small guy. He had really kind of stopped growing when he was about eight or nine and he was my age, but um, so he was small and this was kind of a big um portable uh, oxygen tank. They make them much better and smaller these days, but I had to carry it. I didn't mind, um, but I carried it. And so there's this sort of the, really the wire, right? The tube between he and I that we kind of were shuffling. I didn't want to pull it out. And so I was kind of shuffling behind him. And I think that kind of got attention of a few people, um, which was good because I think that allowed us um, get closer, you know, to the stage and to talk to Don. And what I also remember is that when I first told Don about this, I totally surprised him. I made it as part of the introduction to the concert he gave at the museum when Leo was introduced. And I didn't really tell him ahead of time because I wasn't sure how I was going to be able to tell the story. So um, he remembered picking up Seth. Mm taking that little guy and putting him in the chair so he could sit right there. And that means so much to me that he remembered that because of course I remembered it. And of course, Seth talked about it, you know, from then on. And that was a really neat thing because it, you know, he 
he saw that Seth had questions and he answered his questions. I think Seth even got to like uh, move some of the dials or something. I that huh. I don't really remember. I just remember him being really into it and Don giving him all the time in the world. And, um, you know, I was naive to think that Seth was going to live forever. I didn't think about that, but I can't help but think that we were all sort of touched by that moment that we can't repeat. And what's left is our memories of the compelling passion that people took and compassion to allow this little kid to have a few minutes of joy, joy, joy. I mean, every letter in that word is capitalized in my mind right now. It's joy. He was so happy about it. It was such a neat thing. Um, I think I fell asleep on the way home, which is about a 35 minute drive. And my mom said that he just talked the whole time about mm. every little song, every part about it. Uh, he was just really, really uh, filled with joy. And that's what Don does. The reason for bringing this up, this is a little personal for me, as you can tell, but it's a story that I hope resonates with all you guys listening that Don has something extra special. It's not just a talent. It's this person that he is that connects people in such an amazing and I'll say it again, endearing way. And I mean that in all of its strength, that the power of that word. So thank you for letting me share this uh, story because I'm hopeful that it continues to show just what a great guy Don Lewis is. Wow, that was a really great story, Dan. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I don't really know where to go from here because that was so great. <laughs> but I guess I'll just encourage everybody watching or listening to check out the full interviews posted on our website and also check out the video version of this podcast because you will get to see Leo and Don pointing out all the different parts of Leo. Um, so to see that, just head over to nam.org slash library slash podcast. And I think that just shows, I mean, you were telling that story and I, not quite the same story, but like, I know I definitely had times where I was way too young to get into certain places, but I had to hear the music and trying to figure out ways to do that. And, you know, I think a lot of people can relate to that, that story of just having that passion and that drive and like really wanting to go, go experience that music. And, um, and also I'm sure, you know, Don and Seth, they, they knew the moment that they saw each other, that they both had that passion and he could probably see that passion come off of Seth. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, this just speaks to, to, you know, that universal love of music and how you can really bond with people uh, right off the bat with that. So that was a fantastic story. Um, so we're going to get a little back into his interview. Uh, we're going back, back to the future. Back, back to the future. <laughs> uh, we're going to go back to his 2021 interview that we've recently done. Um, and this is just going to be a little bit of Don kind of reflecting um, on his career and also uh, just talking actually about music's uh, healing qualities. So it's perfect timing for that story. Um, and just, uh, you know, reflecting on his NAM experience and what NAM has meant to him and seeing it grow and seeing the synth area grow and how exciting that's been. So uh, let's get back into our final segment with Don Lewis. I think if you look at the law, the law is changing 
1964 civil rights happened not overnight. There was this movement of not only blacks, but whites, and they were singing songs, not chanting. Chants are okay, but when you sing a song, you get both sides of the brain going. It's the lyrics and the music, the melodies. And when you synchronize, when many people synchronize those two things, that means they're more in sync. But when you're only synch synchronizing what you would call the logic side of the brain, which is this side over here, the left side, um, a lot of this is not logical. And so it doesn't have nearly the, the, the um, purpose or the sustainability. But when you sing, <laughs> those songs we sang when we were kids, we still know the words to. <laughs> so these are very important things. The, 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 this generation doesn't understand that. <clears throat> it's the singing that pulls people in. You can pull people in by chanting and ranting but it won't last long without something going amiss. The singing part always brings peace, even when you're confronted with an adversary. They were singing when they came across that, that bridge, when John Lewis was coming across that bridge. Well, I have to say, um, when we were at a Naris, um um, chapter uh, party, I think it was the year I, I had the, what was it, um, was it 35 oh, it years? Yeah. <clears throat> 35 years of being a member of, of NARIS, mm -hmm. the Grammys, and <clears throat> Dave Brubeck was, was in the room, mm -hmm. and um, I guess he was 90, and we got a chance, they they, we walked over and, and sat at the table, and he and his wife were there. And here he was getting ready to go on tour. <laughs> I think it was 91 or something like that. <laughs> and Julie looked at me and says, are you going to be able to do that? <laughs> so to and I looked at, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking, he had purpose. Um, just being there, uh, on stage was enough whether he played or not mm -hmm. because people honored what how they, their music changed changed the whole way that we were looking at music I mean 5-4 mm -hmm. <laughs> Take 5 he and Paul Desmond um, that, that whole genre that, that was just incredible and to sit there and uh, to talk with him for a few moments was uh, eye-opening. So <clears throat> I'm just, I'm just a little, uh, as the old folks used to say, I'm not dry behind the ears yet. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it because I think there's so much, um, so much yet to learn, uh, so much yet to impart and to create. I'm just looking at new ways to do it. Um, it's just like Leo. 
what's what's going to be the next um, idea? Uh, I don't know whether or not it will be a musical instrument, as I know musical instruments now. But I'm working on stuff, <laughs> and I'm <clears throat> happy. Mm. I'm happy to be in a place where um, I feel as though I can share some knowledge and learn more than I ever could learn. That's really neat. <laughs> you know, when I interviewed Dave Brubeck, you reminded me that I said, well, you know, how do you keep going? You know, I, mm -hmm. I interviewed him when I think he was like 94 or something. Mm -hmm. And he says, because I still have something to say. Mm -hmm. And as long as we have that, I think that's our motivation, isn't it? Yes. We, we still yes. can contribute. We still have something that we want to convey. And I see that in you all the time, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I, it, it's really interesting right now. Um, all of my, um, I would say, uh, um, colleagues uh, and heroes in, in various um, parts of music industry, technology, software writers, and so forth, I get to, I get to um, hang out with them every Wednesday on Zoom. We used to go to the restaurant. And he used to call it the Dead Presidents Club, which was Tom Oberheim, you know, Roger Lynn, you know, John Chowning, and so so forth. And uh, so they've kept uh, uh, Evan Brooks. Um, and in fact, Evan is one who, who uh, introduced me to this group. And they keep me thinking out of the box because these are these people who who have been uh, instrumental in developing all of these new tools and beyond. Mm. And they're still doing some. Some are still working with companies like Apple and some are working independently. Some are not working and just doing what they want to do. And it's really cool. And to be hanging out with people who are looking at life um, beyond where we normally to hang out with those kinds of minds is very stimulating. Mm. Very stimulating. 1969 was my first NAMM show. <laughs> and, um, and I, I think I came, I would some way work it out that I would come to NAMM show every year. Because one thing about the NAMM show, after, after about 10 of them, it's really about coming and see all the people that you didn't see all year. <laughs> and the innovations, though, uh, that I saw coming, especially when um, the digital, when I saw the, the synthesizer area start to expand, where it was just this little niche. Mm. I used to come to the NAMM show, and of course, Hall E, Downstairs was where all the innovators, the new new product people, who had no budgets, <laughs> so to speak. And, but that was the most interesting part. I would love to come there. I would go there first, and then come upstairs and and, and see what else was going on. But Nam was um, and is still um, um, a people place where people are making things happen. And um, I owe my career outside of what I do in performance, but I feel as though uh, my career has been uh, enhanced immensely by being a part of NAM uh, 
as a contractor to various companies that I work for, but just coming. And then after, after the museum, I mean, God, you got me for life. <laughs> Good. That's awesome. Good stuff. So that concludes our uh, episode on Don Lewis. And I hope you guys have all realized how wonderful of a guy he is that we all kind of <laughs> already talked about, but uh, just such a fantastic story that he told. And I love his background and how that's transitioned into more of the electronic synthesizer. I mean, it's just, it's a great story. And you can tell that that, that love of music has really uh, been there with him since, since he was a kid. <laughs> and I think it's important to say that this is really only one small element of the Don Lewis story, really, yeah. honestly. There's so many other amazing components of things that happened um, since Leo or because of Leo. For example, um, the um, electronic instruments uh, being introduced in the 70s and early 80s was a big threat to an awful lot of people that they thought computers and robots are coming and going to be doing away with other musicians. And so there was a huge protest and the musicians union had picket signs outside of Don's performances uh, to the point where it really cost him um, valuable income. Yeah. And, um, and many, many other things, you know, he got involved with Quincy Jones and um, the amazing things with um Kakahashi and, and others in, in electronic instrumentation later on um, and for many, many years and continues to. And I think that's important to say that this podcast couldn't possibly represent all of that. So um, I would encourage you to seek out the movie, the documentary that uh, our good friend Ned Augustenborg has uh, created for Don to tell Don's story with uh, Julie, uh, Don's wife, um, called The Ballad of Don Lewis. And the website uh, for information about how you can view this is the, it starts with T, the, the ballad of Don Lewis altogether. Dot com, And um, there you can get more information about how to view the, that really, really compelling movie. And I'm not just saying that because I'm interviewed in it. In fact, I think my <laughs> interview is like the worst part of the whole thing. Although for those of you who can watch us on camera now with our podcast having video, uh, you might want to seek it, if nothing else, to see Dan with hair. Ooh. So that's how long ago that interview was. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty rare moment. <laughs> I've known Don Lewis so long, I had hair. So, um, so yeah, I would uh, check it out because that movie not only is um, a love story of passion for music from Don, but it's really a, a love project from uh, from Ned, who really put his heart and soul, and I'm sure his finances, into telling this compelling story to the world. And he did a marvelous job and should be commended. And I don't think enough can be said about Julie. You know, I didn't mean to... Um, to just segment her by saying she was a cheerleader. To me, she is really the pillar uh, of this whole thing. And we can't talk enough about her. Uh, but yet she's probably one of the 
the shyer people, you know, most of the behind the scenes folks are just that. And um, she's noticed only because sort of Don insists on it on, you know, whenever. And I have to say, uh, um, Julie is a, a wonderful person. And I'm so glad that it took a little convincing, but we were able to do an interview with her for the oral history pro program because her aspect and her perspective and her background in music is very much, much, much uh, needed to capture as well. So you can check out Julie Lewis's interview segment up on the website as well. So I just wanted to say thank you to all of those folks who, um, who helped make that movie possible because I do think it does a wonderful job telling all the elements of Don's career that we couldn't possibly cover here. Very well said, Dan. And for my final thought, I'm just going to say if you're in the neighborhood of Carlsbad, California, or maybe you're looking for somewhere to go on vacation, you know, the beaches are always nice there. Um, they've got the Museum of Making Music uh, and the NAM headquarters in the same building. And the museum recently had a renovation uh, the past year. They totally redid everything. Um, there's a big oral history presence there now, so you can see a lot of our interviews throughout the museum exhibits, which Yay. is very exciting for us. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and Leo which is there. And they'll rotate too. All oh, those that's will rotate true, yeah. over time too, so we can you can access new and different interviews throughout mm -hmm. time. That's yes, very true. So you got to go more than once a year, maybe a couple <laughs> times, just to see all the different exhibits. Oh, and yeah. Leo is on display there, so you can actually see it in person. See all the buttons and all the wires that Don explains in his interview. So <laughs> highly recommended if you're in the area. It is totally, totally worth it. So I think that is the end of this episode. Thank you everyone for listening and watching. We will be back again in two weeks with a brand new episode. And until then, bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.